we know that you will love this podcast. So shut your mouth and listen to Canadian Bushcraft. Hey there, Dragonfly Nation. This is the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Caleb Musgrave. Why old style gear? That's a question that is asked all the time. I've had that question myself in the past. And I thought this is a good time to talk. I've noticed that gear talks, as they usually are, are getting a little bit more viewings than our other uh, episodes. Which is what was to be expected. But I figured a way to try and work with that is to talk about gear from the perspective of knowledge. I'm always trying to push knowledge first, as one of our previous, I think it was episode nine, uh, episode nine of the podcast. As I try to teach and as I try to work with people, I always try to encourage to go for older, more traditional gear by looking at the knowledge around it and what's important around it. And so this episode is about choosing gear that is old-fashioned or made the old way or is made from natural or more natural materials than modern gear. And why? Why do we choose those things? And why does it work? And why does everybody love it? Why does everybody praise it? And a lot of it's going to be talking about clothing. I don't want to turn this into a clothing episode. I'm kind of still working on an episode for clothing. Kind of like a buying guide for summer gear and a buying guide for winter gear. That's coming out a little later this summer. Um, probably in August. Well, it's going to have to be August. It's the last week of July. But anyways, um, I figured we would talk a little bit about some clothings, but more about the materials of those clothing, and then talk about other gear that's important because of what we depend on it for, and why those things that are made in a more traditional or old-fashioned or uh, old-timey way, or even antique versions of them, can be in a lot of ways superior to the modern options that we have. And there's a good reason behind that. Uh, the main reason is it lasts. Nine times out of ten, modern material is not made to last as well as old style gear. Uh, but the other reason I want to talk about it is because it's going to help you kind of get into the mindset of looking at things from a perspective of the land and a perspective of bushcraft. Um, blankets are available everywhere. So being able to make your own clothing out of those blankets and being able to justify cutting up that you know, not necessarily inexpensive anymore wool blanket to make into a shirt or a pair of trousers or a shawl or whatever you want to use it for, or a cloak, if you want to go all Lord of the Rings. Why would that be a good idea? Or going out and buying an antique axe head and refurbishing it over a modern axe. Um, the reason for that is kind of going away slowly as the popularity of axes is growing, but we're going to kind of touch on it as well. And the... Through it all, I kind of want to lay down and instill in you the idea that you should look at older gear, um, at antique shops, at yard sales, look at it and question, why Why do we not use that anymore? Nine times out of ten, it's weight. Not for any other reason, but weight. Um, and that's a fact. But this is going to be a good little like brain exercise for whenever you're looking at an option or, a, or a, a subject or a concern or an issue in your bushcraft. Is there a traditional solution? Is there an old time solution? Is there an ancestral solution? So yes, this is kind of a gear talk, but it's also a way to practice your knowledge and your knowledge seeking and procurement. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about gear from an old timey perspective. Why would I want to wear a wool anorak or a wool shirt underneath a canvas anorak while walking around in wooden and rawhide snowshoes, carrying an old 50-year-old axe on a handmade handle with an old butcher knife strapped to a rawhide sheath when I could be out there in a Gore-Tex jacket, all the best, all the most modern materials in my underlayer and my base layer or my base layer and my mid layers? Why wouldn't I want to wear Gore-Tex shoes instead of those canvas and buckskin mucklucks? Why wouldn't I want to wear the most high-end metal, aluminum, magnesium, carbon fiber hybrid snowshoes while carrying 
the most modern of stainless steel, high quality, single piece of metal, tomahawk, tactical tool, while also using a modern, very expensive knife with a bunch of serrations and titanium coating and a polymer handle with a bunch of polypropylene mixed in with a bunch of rubberized materials. And why wouldn't I want to carry the old stuff? Why wouldn't I want to carry the new stuff? Why not? Why, why, why? That's what we're here to answer, folks. Why? Let's start from the ground up with kit. Why would I choose old-fashioned materials over modern materials or old-fashioned gear over modern gear from the ground up. Let's go back to that winter scene I was kind of painting there abstractly. Let's think about we're winter camping and I have two people who have similar body structure, similar metabolic uh, requirements, same kind of BMI and all that kind of stuff. So they're going to be very similar in the same climate. And maybe they both group in the same neighborhood so that their bodies are fully acclimated with the right kind of midichlorian, mitochondrial, not midichlorian, I just showed that I was a Star Wars nerd. Mitochondrial DNA is very similar to make sure they are completely as close as two human, separate humans can be in this scenario. One is wearing all the most modern gear and carrying the most modern equipment. The other is wearing mostly traditional gear and mostly traditional uh, equipment. Let's, let's look at them both. There's benefits to both. And the number one benefit to the person in the modern gear is they're going to be walking a little lighter for the most part. Not necessarily true every time, though. Their snowshoes are made of a hybrid material of polymers and metals. They're made out of... Um, they're made to be of a certain size. They're packable and they can be put into a rucksack or an alpine backpack. They can be fit on the side of a snowmobile, and they even have like these metal crampons on them that make walking up a hill really good. Okay, they're wearing those. And the other person is wearing large, you know, beaver tail pattern, hickory or ash or yellow birch frames with uh, moose and caribou rawhide lacing all through webbing. And then their crampons, uh, not, there are no crampons, but their, their clip-ons or their tie-ins are lampwick. And the other person is wearing specialized little foot boxes that strap down around the boot, right? And we'll get to the footwear in a bit, but let's talk about the snowshoes first. The one that's modern gear, you're going to see those kinds of snowshoes from brands like MSR, uh, REI, and practically every camping store carries them. Even nowadays, you'll find variations of it made by Woods Canada for Canadian Tire. You'll find those aluminum frame snowshoes that are tiny and they've got a couple of plastic and poly, poly, uh, well, polymer material for webbing and all that kind of stuff. And they're, they look sleek. They look fast. They look sexy. They look like they belong on your back, hiking up a hill before you go, you know, like cut some snow with your snowboard or your skis. They're pretty cool looking and they're really light. Man, are they so light? So why wouldn't I want to wear those compared to those big, you know, wooden snowshoe frames that are kind of clunky and they got a lot of rawhide on them and they got, they have a little bit of maintenance, you know, like every year you got to either varnish them or you got to grease them with a wax paste mix and you got to do all these things to take care of it. Whereas the metal, uh, the metal and polymer ones, you know, they're, they're pretty, they're made of an aluminum, you know, and a titanium is in there and it's mostly a polymer. So it doesn't really need a lot of maintenance. Once in a while you got to replace parts. So that's a bit of a bummer. You got to like, if a piece breaks, you got to send that away and you got to get wait for it to come back and then you, but then you can reattach it and you're good. Or maybe it's fully warranty or, uh, insured by the, by its maker and you can just send it back and you know, in a couple of weeks they send it back to you. It didn't cost you anything. That's pretty cool. The problem is terrain. What are those snowshoes? Every snowshoe pattern, even the modern ones are depending on the terrain they are designed for. So if I wear, even in the wooden snoo ca uh, snowshoe category, wooden snoo, wow, wooden snowshoe category, even in there, if I wear like a pair of little bear paws and I go out onto a big open lake, I'm going to be really exhausted wearing those things. And vice versa, if I wear a pair of long, you know, Nishnabek style or Cree or Ojibwe style with a pointed nose and the pointed toe, or sorry, the pointed heel and the pointed toe, those things in the bush, in the tight brush, are really, you know, clumsy to wear 
So even inside like the wooden snowshoe category, there's a lot of variances and a lot of variables. Whereas in the metal snowshoe or the polymer, the modern snowshoe category, there's pretty much one simple pattern with a few variances on it. And it's an elongated bear paw with a tubular frame. Sometimes it's one solid piece, but sometimes it's tubular. And that's pretty much it. They're all elongated snowshoes because an elongated snowshoe is considered kind of a jack-of-all-trades for snowshoes. See, they're long enough to give you a lot of good float on powdery snow on top of a large area that's flat or at least treeless. Right. Okay, that's good. And they're also round-nosed and round-heeled so that when you're moving around in the bush or through the trees, you don't get hung up on stuff as easily. That's pretty good, too. But even an elongated bear paw snowshoe made of wood and rawhide is a little bit more effective in open country than those alpine hiker snowshoes that are found everywhere nowadays, made of tubes of polymer or, or metal and covered with a polymer mesh, or they're made of one solid piece of titanium or something. Um, they're going to have a lot better float on that deep, wide, long-distance snow. And that's why many people in northern Canada still use wooden snowshoes. That's one of the major reasons. Is yeah, they're a little heavier. Yeah, they might not work in you know closed terrain. But when they're trying to cross the Big Lakes, or they're going across the uh, the, the uh, barren lands, or they're going across tundra, or they're going across muskego areas, or big frozen lakes, or big frozen rivers, or big open fields. Those big, wide, and long snowshoes track better, and they walk better, and you're less exhausted by the end of the day because you're not post-holing through waist-deep snow all day. Because even in those, even in the biggest and most expensive and high-end modern snowshoes, they're still so small that, you know, the deeper snow, the wider snow, the powdery snow, it's going to post-hole a lot. And even in the terrain that they're made for, they post hole a lot more than a mo than a traditional snowshoe would. The difference is they're made for that kind of high altitude moving of going up into mountains and high hills and icy cliff sides and stuff. They're made for rock climbers. They're made for ski border, uh, skiers and uh, snowboarders. I am really tired apparently. Skiers and snowboarders. And they're made for people that are going on quick little jaunts up certain places, getting into certain areas. And that's where they 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 really still reign supreme. So I'm not saying that they're inferior, but they're not the snowshoe you want to take if you're going on a snow trip, if you're going on a snow walking trip, if you're going on a snowshoeing trip, if you're going to be crossing a lot of terrain that's mostly open country, traditional snowshoes of any design would be a better bet than the modern snowshoe. The other benefit of a traditional snowshoe is if you learn how you can repair and replace every part of that snowshoe yourself. You don't have to ship away the snowshoe and wait for it to be repaired under warranty or out of warranty and pay for the repairs. You don't have to wait for a part to show up. If you know how to carve that wood, you can make a splint. If your frame cracks, you know how to, frame, how to take a piece of wood and splint it in there after you loosen the lacings, get it in and support it, or even replace the frame. You can do that on the land in the field. If you already are learning bushcraft, that's kind of the direction you should be going towards, is knowing how to repair those things. If you carry a sheet of rawhide in your pack, which is useful for a lot of other things, you now have the ability to replace any laces that get torn by sharp rock or, or really razor edge ice. On the other hand, if you're carrying a firearm, you can also potentially, in the right situation, for legal reasons, you've got to know what those situations are, um, you could potentially take a caribou or a moose or a deer and replace that rawhide in the field if you didn't bring that rawhide with you. Regardless, you know how to fix it, and not just fix it, but practically replace it and return it back to its perfect nature before, if you learn those things. And you've got to learn it. You've got to go and take classes with people that know how to make snowshoes, whether it's an old woods folk uh, like Meshkigawak people or Northern Nishnabek, or it's a workshop happening at a local museum or camping store or whatever may be happening. 
There's people around Canada that know how, and in America, and in many other countries these days, that know how to make snowshoes. So they can teach you that stuff. You can find them. You just got to look around online and in person and ask around. And you will find information. And you'll find people. Or you can learn it yourself and just watch enough videos and make enough mistakes that eventually you get it done right. We've talked about that, how to seek and procure knowledge. So... That's the main benefits, the two main benefits of traditional snowshoes over modern snowshoes. Does that mean modern snowshoes are crap? No. I've got a couple pairs down here with, with me in the bunker right now. They're phenomenal for their job. For the, but the reason to enjoy using traditional gear is, A, it's often easier to replace or repair in the field. B, it's usually designed specifically for the terrain you're going into, just like those snowshoes. But another reason is the enjoyment of making those things and procuring those things and, and having a, a relationship with that equipment. You can still have that relationship with modern gear. I'm not saying you can't, but it's easier to feel almost uh, in tune with a pair of wooden snowshoes that you've helped lace or you helped refurbish yourself after you got them from an old antique shop or from a yard sale. You, you learn to take care of them and love them, and you, you understand them better. And so there's kind of a, a, a relationship between you and the snowshoe. So there's kind of some poetry and philosophy in there as well that we can kind of seek the pure... It's almost like a purist concept, but I don't really want to get into that. I hate the idea of purist mindsets because they often ignore reality. Uh, I'm going to paddle this kind of canoe specifically because of this, and I'm going to use only this kind of tool because of only this. I don't consider myself a purist. I consider myself mostly a realist. And I realistically <clears throat> appreciate traditional gear because of the benefits it gives me. If it doesn't benefit me, trust me, I use modern gear instead. So we've talked about the snowshoes. Let's talk about what they're holding on to, the, the footwear. Modern, you know, a lot of modern winter snow uh, snowshoes, uh, snow boots. Getting back into my stumbling on words here, folks. Um, most of the modern snow boots that are meant for, you know, hiking and uh, cross-country skiing and going up and snowboarding and stuff, they're not really made understanding what material does with your body. Um, that's, that's just kind of a reality of it. Uh, Gore-Tex can breathe and it can be waterproof, but it can't be both at the exact same time. And more importantly... If your feet are really sweaty, the boots are waterproof. The water's staying in there. It has to evaporate. It can't just, you know, leak out. It doesn't work that way. The, 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 the barrier of Gore-Tex and other waterproof breathables is they're breathable, not water porous from one direction and waterproof the other way. So you got to be mindful of that, that you produce approximately on any average day one and a half cups of sweat just in your feet alone. So let's say it's minus 40 and you're going on this snowshoe trip and you're wearing, you know, heavy duty, but ultra light, modern Gore-Tex, you know, boots that have a Gore-Tex, that have a Gore-Tex liner membrane. And then they have uh, boot liners that are made of a poly pro, uh, polypropylene material, kind of like felt, but it's polyester or slash polypropylene. So we got those. The poly boot liners don't really wick water away that's the first problem is they 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 dry fast but only when they're exposed to heat and only when they're you know left out in an ambiently dry environment if if they're in the boot and they're wet and you have sweat on you they're not pulling that sweat away from your foot they're just letting it sit right there right there beside your foot in that sock and that can lead to things like trench foot or frostbite or freezing your entire foot solid. That's one of the biggest issues. Is that negative 40, it's not the external water in the environment. It's the internal water of the environment. And that's you. Of you. That's your sweat. Vaporous and liquid sweat. Condensing into your clothing and building up frost. And building up water uh, particles that are then going to freeze up as frost elsewhere. And keep causing more and more issues. And even absorb your heat as it tries to actually evaporate, become a vaporous sweat again. If it's warming up enough, it's going to have to warm up and warm up and warm up and evaporate. 
We've talked about evaporation in the shelter episode. Uh, one of our shelter episodes. We had two shelter episodes. The first shelter episode, we talked about the five shuns, and one of them is evaporation. And if it stays close to your body, it's going to keep sucking up heat until it evaporates. And that can be a lot of work when there's one and a half cups of sweat down there. And so the boot itself doesn't necessarily have to be the problem. The liner can be the problem. And then we get to the boot. Well, the boot is waterproof both ways. It's only vapor uh, that can travel through that membrane. Which means you have to warm up that boot enough to get that water, that sweat, to turn into a vapor and leave. That's the only way you're going to get it through a Gore-Tex jacket. Or, sorry, a Gore-Tex boot. Any Gore-Tex material. You're, you has to be vaporous sweat. That's why a Gore-Tex rain jacket has all those zippers at your armpits and stuff. And Gore-Tex rain pants have zippers in the crotch. They're, they're meant to act as vents to let air in so that the, the sweat can dry. Or at least get warmed up enough or wiped off of you enough by the breeze or the draft so that it gets vaporous enough to go through the membrane. So that out of the way... That's one issue, is the waterproofness of the boots can become a problem. On the other hand, the person wearing smoke tanned moose hide moccasin bottoms with canvas uppers is wearing wool socks. Both parties might be wearing wool socks, but the one who's wearing traditional moccasins, snowshoe moccasins, um, is wearing wool socks. And they're going to have a wool liner. It's either stroud cloth or blanket cloth or other thick wool as a liner. And those liners are breathable, and the wool socks are breathable, and the moose hide moccasins are breathable, and the canvas uppers are breathable. That's the benefit for that minus 40 trip this person, these two people are on. The one is going to be really, really cold after a few days, especially if they don't have access to warming, drying fires, so that they can dry that boot out thoroughly every night and remove all the frost. So that's a problem. Ask me the same problem all the way up the body. Wool pants versus polyester pants. Wool mid, uh, mid layers and base layers on the top instead of polyester and polypropylene layers on the top. And Under Armour style wicking, you know, spandexy shirts and long johns be damned. They're not as effective as merino wool base layers. They just aren't. And so looking at that, we start to realize there's kind of a benefit on being able to suck up the water and get it out of the, away from the body fast. Natural materials can do that. Most unnatural materials, most synthetic or man-made materials, cannot do that. Most. I have not come across too many that are affordable either. If there are fully absorbent and wicking uh, man-made fibers, they are costly. If they do exist, they are costly. So that's a problem, is we can't replicate nature's efficiency. Wool being coming from a sheep, or it could be cashmere from a goat, or it could be angora from a rabbit. Uh, there's even like possum wool toques you can find out there, or hats. Uh, possums from Australia, of all places. And then even husky wool is used. But anyways, what wool is, for most part, is a hair fiber that is poly, uh, sorry, uh, hydrophobic on the outside, hydrophilic on the inside. And what that means is the wool's core wants water, whereas the shell of the wool of hair doesn't want water. It doesn't want to make contact with water. So even when a wool jacket is really wet, it can actually feel fairly dry. That's the first part, because the shell of all those hairs that make up that shirt or that jacket or those pants don't like to touch water but the, sh the core loves it. And so it sucks up all the water. And that's kind of like the negative to wool, is if you fall out of a canoe and you're wearing wool pants, wool long johns, a wool base layer, a wool mid layer, and a wool jacket, you are going to feel like you're getting dragged to the bottom of that lake pretty fast. I fell out of a canoe once back in 2007, maybe 2008, late fall, like late, late, late fall. It was about negative... Uh, just above freezing, just above freezing. So I was like maybe one degree uh, Celsius or Canadian if you're Tim Smith. Um, and that was kind of the danger was it was very cold and I was in wool pants, a wool shirt and a wool jacket 
and I was getting dragged to the bottom. And I couldn't get back. Like, I can self-rescue. The canoe was still upright. There was very little water in it. I had just fallen out because I bumped into a stump under the water that I hadn't seen. I fell in. Lost my balance. Um, getting back in took 23 minutes. 23 minutes. And my muscles felt like they were on fire by the time I got into that canoe. Trying to pull me and all the way to that water sucked up into those clothes. Dragged every ounce of energy out of my core. I was exhausted. And I still had to paddle back to shore. And I did. And that was the crazy part is I never felt on the verge of cold. I was in pain from that weight and trying to paddle in soaking wet wool was exhausting. After you fell out of a canoe and had to get back into the canoe, you then had to have to paddle to shore and it was exhausting, genuinely, sincerely exhausting. But I never felt very cold because wool, when fully saturated, fully saturated, retains upwards of 60% of its insulative properties because of that hydrophobic shell of each hair. And so because it doesn't feel wet and because the water's not staying close to you and it's getting wicked up by that core and being drawn out and away from your body through the thermal transfer effect, you feel okay. You're not going to, you're not comfortable, but you're going to be okay. And as long as the wind doesn't pick up, because that's the one major downside of wool, is it is not windproof. We'll get into a, a solution for that traditionally. That wool will keep you warm as long as the air is still long enough for you to get rescued and warmed up and out of them and able to stand by a big bonfire or get into a tent with a bunch of sleeping bags and friends or what have you to get warm again. It can save your life while also dragging you to the bottom of the lake. So you gotta be mindful of that. I don't wear too much wool when I'm when I know I'm gonna be paddling. I that's when I start switching over to the polypropylenes and other um, lighter but insulative materials that'll still keep me fairly warm. But I, I I've done the same dump outs in fleece, polyester fleece. It is cold. Or polypropylene fleece? In fleece, in poly fleece. I have fallen into a lake, out of a canoe. I was able to get back into the canoe pretty quick, though. It didn't take on a lot of water because it's poly material. The downside was I was cold all the way to shore. I never got hypothermic, but I was very happy that there was a bonfire waiting for me when I got there. So be mindful of that. It's not always that the wool is better. It's that the wool is better usually as, as an option for cold weather, especially when we get back down to that negative 18 and colder in Celsius. Or Canadian if you're Tim Smith. So, the wool has a lot of superiority. It has two major inferiorities, and that is when it's wet, it's heavy, and if it's windy, the wind can cut through it. So you can still have the wind chill factor in a wool jacket with a wool base layer and wool mid layers. Well, canvas doesn't. Canvas doesn't let wool uh, wind through. And that's why we see the canvas anoraks. Canvas anoraks in traditional snow trekker gear is durable, but also windproof without ever having to put on a waterproofing. Because again, we're dealing with negative 18 and colder. At those temperatures, it's not likely you're going to be dealing with a lot of outside water or outside wetness. You're going to be dealing with internal wetness mostly. So when we talk about canvas, the canvas can be very effective at being breathable enough to at least knock the frost off itself as you walk and let the water vapor leave your body, all the while blocking the wind. In its own sense, it's a non-waterproof, slightly breathable. So it's like anti-Gore-Tex canvas. So these are unwaxed. I'm not talking about oil skin or tin cloth. I'm just talking about straight up canvas anoraks uh empire wool uh wool and uh, empire canvas and wool company down in the states make some i have a i have one that was a handmade one uh hanging off of a hook right in front of me down here in the bunker 
we have uh, canvas anoraks made by a bunch of different companies and a bunch of different programs teach you how to make them yourself as well. So there's a lot of options out there. And the canvas anorak is the original windbreaker. That is what a windbreaker was, and that's why they're called windbreakers. They stop the wind chill from getting down to your base layers. So that compared to a Gore-Tex parka that you're wearing. Most modern parkas are too damn warm. I'll say it. Even the beautiful and expensive Canada Goose Down jackets that are made with, with Goose Down and Coyote Fur Trim and all that kind of stuff that is natural, most of the anoraks are made out of a poly material shell and a poly material liner. Those, including with all the other modern parkas made of Gore-Tex and Ripstop and everything else, those are poly synthetic materials and they're not breathable so we fall into that same trap but let's go a little bit deeper we were talking about durability of the snowshoes earlier and moccasins and such we didn't really get too much i mentioned durability at the beginning of the podcast i haven't really talked about it since let's say we have to live with open fire let's say our tent stove broke down and it failed and the stovepipe is unsafe for whatever reason Let's say we accidentally burnt the tent down. We'll get into the tent and the stove and all that in a bit as well because those are other traditional gear that have modern outlooks and modern versions. And Anyways, we'll get into that in a bit. Let's say I burnt the tent down or melted the tent down if it's a polyester material. We're in trouble because now we got to sleep by an open fire and make shelters. Okay. Well, would you like to wear your very expensive Gore-Tex or Canada Goose Down jacket or parka or whatever it may be by an open fire and sleep in your jacket by an open fire and have all those embers spitting? Let's say we're in the North Country. You're going to be burning spruce and pine and maybe some birch, maybe some poplar. All of these woods send up embers. The ones that are made of spruce and pine, those embers are a little bit more molten, a little bit more often. Whereas the birch ones are often larger embers that come flying out and they land on stuff. Same with the poplar. The, the hardwoods will pop out embers, whereas the spruce and pine and other conifers will usually send out sparks, a lot of sparks. And some of them become cinders that can last a little bit longer because they're a little molten from all the resin that's been burning. You want to put that expensive synthetic material of your boots your pants and your jacket against that. You want to sleep near that. Whereas if I'm wearing my canvas anorak and I've got my wool base layers and wool mid layers and wool pants and moccasins that are lined with wool and I've got smoked tan moose hide, I don't think twice. I'll lay down right beside that fire with just some spruce boughs as a bed and I'll go right to sleep. Whereas the person who's wearing the poly material, they're going to have to worry. And this can even be the case in a tent with a wood stove because you're going to be dealing with the occasional sparks as well and opening and living around a stove and trying to dry your clothes near a stove. You're, you're going to have to be mindful of that, that you are dealing with a hot thing and you're wearing stuff that melts. That is terrifying. That's the number one reason I wear wool in cold weather because I'm drying off and warming up with fires and I don't want to be melting. I've had beautiful $300 Gore-Tex jackets that end up looking like a sieve from the amount of sparks that land on them in a single season. So it's one of the reasons I don't wear a Gore-Tex jacket usually when we're teaching courses or doing big trips where I know we're going to be having a lot of fires. If I'm going out and I'm doing a a deer hunt or I'm doing a moose hunt or I'm going up uh, in rainy conditions to check my trap line, things like that. Yeah, I'll wear a rainproof, waterproof synthetic jacket. Whether it's Gore-Tex or a, a wet skins kind of jacket or anything like that, I'll wear it, no problem, because I'm not really expecting to be involved in my life with a fire. But usually I wear a wool shirt jack underneath it, just in case. Just in case. But that's when I wear those things. When I'm living around a fire and it's rainy and cold out, that's when I start wearing oil skin which is, uh, or tin cloth, which is a wax and oil mix solution impregnated into canvas. Uh, and that could be in a jacket. I've got a pair of tin cloth pants that I wear deer hunting and upland game bird hunting. 
Uh, I've had oil skin jackets and dusters. And these jackets and dusters are durable. Oddly enough, they're fairly resistant to flames and they're fairly resistant to sparks, even though they're made of wax, oil, and canvas. They're pretty resilient against fire. But also, they're waterproof enough that if I'm wearing a wool jacket or wool shirt underneath, I can get by. Right? And it's the same thing with my boots. If I'm working around a fire, I'm not going to wear my very nice and expensive hiking boots that are made usually out of a poly material. I'm going to be wearing leather boots that have hard rubber soles, not the modern kind of foamy, rubbery, synthetic soles. I'm going to use hard, hard old rubber or leather soles around that fire. If I'm doing blacksmithing, copper casting, bronze casting, any heavy metal work with a lot of coals and embers and sparks and hot metal, I wear leather shoes, all right, and leather boots. I don't go near that with synthetic material. It's going to hurt real bad, real fast. Uh, but yeah, that's one of the main ones when we talk about durability is fire. When your life involves fire, you want durable, fire durable clothing. So that's the first part of durability. Second part of durability is when we're dealing with the environment itself. Rocks, shale, uh, which is a type of rock. Uh, nettle, or uh, sorry, nettle, not nettles, uh, needle sharp thorns, like buckthorn, hawthorn, rosebush, raspberry, cane break, or sorry, cane break is uh, an environment for river cane, but like uh, the, the, the raspberry canes, blackberry and brambles and stuff like that. When you're dealing with these sharp and jagged environments, your clothing can take a beating. It can take a lot of abuse. Even if you're trying to walk careful, you can cause a lot of damage. You take a spill. When I had my big fall in 2014 in Wyoming, I went ass over tea kettle for 750 feet down the side of a very big foothill called a mountain, part of the Black Hills National Forest. Uh, when I fell down that, I ended up tearing the entire side of my hiking boot open. It was a pair of Merrells, no discredit to Merrells, those boots had served me very well for three months at that point. In the deserts, around rock terrain, up in the higher parts of the Black Hills, in real rough and tumble terrain, those boots did me well. But on this particular tumble, I tore the entire side of the boot right off the sole. And so I was walking with a half-on, half-off boot. With a very sore back and a very sore hip and a very sore, short, a sore, shorter, a sore shoulder and a very stiff and almost damaged neck. Uh, I really messed my back up, and now I had bad footing for the rest of the hike out, and it was a five-and-a-half-mile hike. That was not pleasant. Not pleasant whatsoever. So, if I was wearing a pair of leather boots, or leather-style hikers, like, I've got a pair of Loa Renegades, they're mostly leather, still a synthetic material on the bottom, but... If they were to tear off their sole, there's a lot of things I can do to replace it. But if they're made of cordura, or they're made out of polyester, or they're made out of these polysynthetic materials, there's not a lot I, myself, can do to fix them in the field. If I carry a sewing kit with glover's needles and maybe a couple of sail needles, I can work most leather into back to a state of repair to manage getting out of there. So from then on, I wear leather boots. I wear leather hiking boots that are, yeah, a little heavier than those nice and light Cordura nylon, ripstop nylon, all those different kinds of boots. It's still a little heavier, but I do not want to have to have that kind of hike again. So I depend on the durability. When it comes down to trousers or pants, I have torn my share of Wind River style or Columbia River style uh, hiking pants. I've torn a lot of them from the groin usually, but also I've just torn them open on branches, torn them open on thorns, cut them open on a rock I slid off of or bumped into or fell onto. I've torn them to shreds. Those pair of tin cloth pants are over... Well, I've had tin cloth pants. This pair I just made last fall, so I can't say that I've had them for years, but they're an exact replica from my previous pair that lasted me five seasons. And I've had a lot of different tin cloth pants and oil cloth skin clothing 
that has lasted a long time. It's durable as hell. As is duck cloth or duck cloth. Um, the the classic Carhartts are durable as hell. These Fjallraven pants that a lot of people are wearing these days, I haven't had a chance to really look at them too much, but I sit there and look at them and I wonder, are they fire retardant enough for me to trust sleeping by an open fire in them? If not, I can see them being good hiking pants, definitely. They're great looking pants and they seem to be very comfortable to wear and be flexible enough to get up and over rocks and climb embankments and all that kind of stuff. Get in and out of a canoe, makes sense. They're lighter than a pair of Carhartts. I guarantee you they are, because Carhartts are some of the heaviest pants I've ever worn in my life. But I know that the Carhartts can take the abuse of hard, everyday work, which is why farmers wear it. Woodcutters wear it. Uh, you, you look at a lot of uh, wildland firefighters. They're wearing very heavy pants made of Nomex, I believe, and they're heavy as hell. But they love them. I got friends who are wildland firefighters that still wear their Nomex pants in the bush, and they'll do backpack, uh, they'll do backcountry hiking, any day of the week in those Nomex pants. And those things are heavy, but they trust them. They know they're durable enough. They know they're not going to worry about around a fire at the camp by any means. But they also know that they can trust them in some really rough terrain. So there's a benefit. I'm not saying that Nomex are you know traditional. Nomex is a pretty modern material. But those heavy-duty pants compared to modern ultralight pants can sometimes be of benefit. Weight is the number one issue with traditional gear. I've talked about that at the beginning of this. I'm going to hit on it again. Um, I, when I went to Colombia, when I went to the jungles of Colombia last summer, uh, I wore almost strictly synthetic material except for my socks. My hiking socks were wool because I know I can trust the wool. Um, it helps keep my, my feet dry, but also wool has antimicrobial properties and I'm in a jungle. So I'm going to trust the antimicrobial properties to keep my feet a little healthier. Um, uh, but the rest of me, I did not want any weight and I did not want any mass on me. A pair of Carhartts compared to a pair of, uh, Columbia river pants are a lot of mass and therefore they're going to be feeling a lot warmer, a lot longer. So it's been a hot day. My legs and my tuchus are going to be pretty damn warm. On the other hand, uh, Wind River pants and the Columbia River pants and all those hiking pants that are pretty popular, they dry off fast, reasonably fast, uh, and also they are very light to wear and they often have, you know, sun blocker in them so that you're not heating up too badly or getting a sunburn by any chance. Same with the hiking shirts that I wear. Even to this day, when I'm going into really hot, muggy environments, I don't like wearing a t-shirt. I don't like wearing a button-up shirt. Uh, if I have to wear any button-up shirt, it's a hiking shirt. It's an ultra-light hiking shirt. Um, those are the shirts I kind of lean towards. So synthetic material has its place. But let's go back to our negative 40 folks. Synthetic material just doesn't hold up compared to traditional wool, canvas, and smoke tan buckskin. It just doesn't. You gotta, you gotta lean on that stuff and trust it. So we kind of went over clothing. As I said, this is like, we're going 43 minutes into this podcast and we've talked mostly about clothing and that. That's what I meant. This is going to be a long talk, but let's talk about the kit. The one person brought an ultralight tent for winter camping. It's a four season tent. They brought with them a little, uh, jet boil or other, uh, fuel canister stove that is going to cook all their meals for them. And they've got a modern knife made of the highest end stainlesses and all that kind of stuff. And poly, we talked about the polypropylene handle with a titanium coating on the blade and all that kind of stuff. The other person has a canvas tent with a wood stove, or they might have an even a modern, let's keep, let's keep it to canvas, like a snow trekker tent or an esker tent. Um, and they have a wood stove, a wood burning stove to keep them warm in there. And they have that wood-burning stove to cook their meals and an open fire to cook their meals. And they have to bring pots and pans for it. And then their knife is a traditional Scandinavian-style uh, puko knife, let's say. It could be another kind of knife. It could be a, uh, it could be, um, a Mora knife. It could be a modern, uh, or it could be an old hickory, or it could be a Green River knife. But anything, you know, traditional. A wood handle, antler handle, anything like that with an old carbon steel blade. And let's say it's an old style blade, like an old hickory or another type of butchery or puko style blades. Okay. So the one who's got the modern gear, 
again, everything's going to be lighter. The tent is a lot lighter. The stove is a lot lighter. Their uh, knife will probably be even a lot lighter. Like, everything will be very light. We look at the person wearing the traditional gear and carrying the traditional tent and carrying the traditional equipment. Their gear's going to be heavier. It's just a fact of it. But a canvas tent is durable and they can hold a lot more warmth. And because they're made of a durable material, they can have a life lived in them. So even the smaller snow trekkers and eskers, you can have a, a good life in there. You can even bring a sleeping platform of some sort, portable, the real tiny cots can be set up in there and you can be up off the ground or you can have a you can have a spruce bough floor and you can have a wood stove in there to dry all your gear out and all that kind of stuff. The ultralight person who's carrying the synthetic material tent uh, doesn't have that luxury necessarily. Some synthetic tents have ports for wood stoves, which means they can have the same benefits. But many of them, many people that go winter camping don't carry those because they don't want to carry the stove and they don't want to carry all that stuff. And the tent is so heavy and they cost a lot of money. I'll take a four-season tent. I know a lot of people that just cold camp in wintertime and I've never understood. I want to be dry every night. I want to be warm every night. And after a while, in an environment where you're sleeping in a tent that has no heat source and you're moving on the land with very little involvement or relationship with fire your clothing will build up frost. It's going to build up frost. And as it builds up frost, it loses its actual ability to insulate you. And eventually, you become hypothermic. Some people guess that even with traditional clothing, after a week uh, or two of no fire to dry your clothes out, you will die in less than two weeks. Some say as soon as one week. Uh, depending on the mass of or kilos of frost you've accumulated in that clothing. So we need the heat to dry off. So both sides look into tents that have wood stoves. I highly recommend them for winter camping. Uh, stop cold camping. I've never understood it. I've never, I've done it a dozen times over and I still don't understand it. Dozens of times, like 30, 40 times I've done it. And I've never understood it. But as soon as I get into a hot tent, I understand that. Whether it's made of nylon or it's made of canvas, I get that. The benefit of the canvas tent is if it does catch a light, it's not going to melt. It'll burn. And it can burn you real bad. It can kill you even. you got to be safe with them. But a synthetic tent that catches a light, it burns like napalm. And when that lands on you, it doesn't come off easily, and it doesn't go out easily either. It can burn you much worse. And if you're wearing synthetic clothing in a synthetic tent that is on fire, you are going to become the human torch. You are going to become Johnny Blaze. Flat out. That's going to happen. So, always going back to this relationship, we need fire to stay warm and dry our clothes out. But we don't want to burn to death. <laughs> so tents, hot tents are the option, are the best option out of all options for cold camping uh, or cold weather camping. But be mindful of what style of tent uh, tent you choose. Be mindful what kind of stove you choose. The big heavy ca like cast iron stoves, I don't take those myself. I take steel or titanium wood stoves. They exist now. Four dog stoves, Nyco. There's a bunch of great brands out there that make amazing packable uh, wood-burning stoves with collapsible telescoping uh, wood to stove tents, uh, tent uh, chimneys, stovepipes. And the tents can be made of synthetic material or they can be made of wood, uh, wool, uh, canvas material. We have to, again, choose what risk we'd rather deal with. The other benefit of a canvas tent is, even though it seems not likely, because of how thick it is and how much mass it holds, it stays a little warmer in a canvas tent a little longer if the stove goes out. I know for a fact, we own a Cabela's Lacknack 2. It's a 20 by 12 tent. And when that stove goes out, it's made of nylon, uh, it's waterproof, it's amazing. I do love this tent. I'm not in any way complaining about this tent. But I can assure you when that stove goes out, I feel it a lot faster than when I do in a canvas tent. 
and I'm used to sleeping in the cold, but I know I can feel it sooner. So be mindful of that kind of stuff. That person also has, you know, a, a wood handle or antler handle knife with a carbon steel blade, and they've got this person carrying a poly blade handle or poly handle with a very modern material blade. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. You get to choose whatever knife you want to choose. And same thing with all the other gear I'm going over. There's nothing wrong with carrying the modern equivalent. But there's a reason to appreciate the traditional. If I break that handle, there's a very good chance if it's an old-fashioned blade, it'll have have either a full tang or at least a rat tail tang that I can put on a new equivalent handle. Something that will work for the time. In fact, you can go up to a green birch tree sapling that's just big enough to wrap your hand around at chest height and cut that down with your saw or axe or even with the broken knife carve a simple handle out of it keeping the bark on it just carve the pommel and carve the front or the hilt set the knife into a log tip first and drive with your axe like a hammer through the pith of the core of that wood stick drive that stick tang that rat tail tang knife on and it not a four one out of four handles will break that way the other three out of four man those last forever i've made green birch knife handles many times in the woods and they are phenomenal they last a long time as long as you take care of them they can last as long as the original handle or more you can't necessarily say that with something that's made out of a poly handle that they're going to have a full tang it's not a guarantee do some companies? Yes. But even Mora of Sweden, I've caught cutting corners and making a much shorter tang in the Mora Companions, the original Clippers, uh, the Army issue hard, pla- hard green plastic handles. I've broken these knives batoning them. Just batoning the, the knife into wood to help split the wood. I've broken the handle. And it was because the tang was only an inch and a quarter to inch and a half into the, into the handle. And so leverage dictates that eventually that other end of the knife is going to want to poke upwards from being slammed downwards on the other side from leverage. And if the handle doesn't go with it, the handle is very likely to break, especially in cold weather. The other issue is if you're using like a rubber handle, rubber rubs. Now don't get me wrong, many of my knife handles are made of synthetic materials, but those synthetic materials are micarta. Micarta is actually natural material hybridized with modern technologies it's canvas linen paper other natural fibers that are impregnated with a high grade epoxy and then put under heavy pressure under specific heat in a kiln to cure it and force that fiber all together into a laminate and that laminate is like plywood but made out of canvas or linen or paper or whatever other material there may be and that's kind of cool because that stuff is going to have the grippiness of the natural material. It's going to have the durability of the natural material while being reinforced by each other with the resin, with the epoxy. So that's really freaking cool. So there are options in the modern synthetic realm that have a lot of durability and are very comfortable to use and comfortable to hold and comfortable to work with, like micarta. So don't get me wrong on this. I don't say, I'm not saying that all synthetic materials have to go away and they must stop now. We must divest from it all right now. I personally try to, but I'm not going to tell all of you to do so. What I find interesting though is when we talk about like a rubber handle. A lot of people like rubber handles. They like them until they're carving for the third or fourth hour. And yeah, even with a wooden knife or an antler handle knife, your hand gets sore. It gets tired, it gets crampy after that long a time. You've got to rest your hand and let it stretch and get some blood flow back. But with a rubber handle, often it's going to rub against your skin and start creating hot spots. And these hot spots become blisters. And yes, eventually a blister can turn into a callus, but a blister can also turn into an infection if you're out in the wilderness. So I prefer wooden handles. I prefer micarta handles and antler handles over rubber. Even if I have to choose, or sorry, I prefer the natural material handles like wood and antler. But if I have to choose a synthetic material, I'm going to go towards one that doesn't cause as much problems. Polypropylene handles, like the hard plastic handles made by Halteforce knives, uh, as well as some of the machetes coming from Condor tool and knife down in El Salvador. 
these polypropylene handles are really good because they're just a hard er soft plastic that is not going to rub as badly and you can actually kind of carve it and sand it and shape it to your content to your hands content rubber i'll avoid every time for any style of knife i don't care what it's kitchen knife fillet knife boning knife doesn't matter doesn't go into my kit it has a rubber handle i just don't trust them they also break down very quickly in comparison to hard plastics and wooden antler in my cart and all that stuff so that's the f- main thing i want to get around is your gear from the top down doesn't have to be the newest craze it doesn't have to be the newest trend of equipment and material and technology and metals metallurgy and all that stuff it can be traditional it can be that old pair of snowshoes or wooden skis that your grandmother has in her shed they can be uh traditional moccasins that were passed down from your grandfather or your uncle or your auntie it could be an old axe head you found in the woods that you fixed up yourself it doesn't have to be the newest craze of material and equipment you can work very well and do what your ancestors did with their technologies and you can take that even further you can smoke tan your own hides nap your own knife make your own bow hunt your own animals with your own equipment that you made yourself and camp out living like your ancestors did and that's called bushcraft at any level that is still bushcraft whether you're camping in modern equipment or going all the way to ancestral living you're still practicing bushcraft but those of us that that prefer that traditional equipment and traditional gear and traditional garb can do a little bit more than those that don't we can experience stuff that those that prefer modern equipment can't experience we can travel further in our snowshoes because we know we can fix them we can paddle our canoe with confidence knowing that we can sew the birch bark back together and gum it back together or if it's a canvas and cedar a cedar strip canvas canoe you know how to fix it yourself usually if you're lucky can you say that about your royal x or your kevlar can you say that about all your modern gear that you know it intimately enough that you know how to fix it in the field and depend on it at all times i'm not saying to throw away all your modern technology as i've mentioned and pointed out many times in this episode i carry synthetic materials i depend on synthetic materials but i know and appreciate them and i have understanding of why i choose them and that makes me love them even more whether they're man-made or made by nature i love them nonetheless and my equipment my clothing my ki- my gear my kit i depend on it with it all with my life and i love it all with my whole being because it takes me into a world that very few get to venture into and that's the world of bushcraft that's the world of wildness that's the world of nature and that to me is the beauty of bushcraft and the journey i've taken over the last 20 plus years and i hope you get to experience that dear listener if you haven't already I hope you take from this episode what I'm trying to pass on and leave behind what you don't need but take what you can and use it to your fullest and use it to your most advantage and enjoy this world that I get to enjoy 200 plus days of the year the world of bushcraft My name's Caleb Musgrave from the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast I want to thank you for listening take care Hey there Dragonfly Nation. I hope you're enjoying this wholesome, sometimes deranged content. We here at Canadian Bushcraft love creating it. We do this podcast along with our live feed videos and several other projects for free to make sure information is shared far and wide to everyone. But if you'd like to help support this project and our other variety of projects, we would be so appreciative. You can find a link to our Patreon account in the information section of this podcast episode. As a patron, you will gain our undying love and admiration. and depending on the tier you choose you'll also get a few kickbacks in return these include weekly patron only articles monthly one-on-one video sessions with myself or other staff to help you with the skills you're trying to hone at home 
and also content such as this podcast one week sooner than the public gets it. You also get to have input on upcoming episodes as well as any future videos we produce. As a small business who wish to remain sponsor-free, we appreciate any and all support from our fans and followers. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a good day.